Pope Francis names new cardinals this week with a few surprises. Our choices received in Rome. The National Catholic Register's Edward Penton reports. And could the new members of the College of Cardinals influence the next conclave? The papal posse, Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray, are here with analysis. And communist China continues to exert its influence in the South Pacific and Taiwan. What should the U.S. response be? Gordon Chang weighs in. Finally, all eyes are on Great Britain this week as Queen Elizabeth celebrates 70 years on the throne. Author Joseph Pierce shares his new book, Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England, and reflects on the Queen's historic reign. The World Over begins right now. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get right to it. Pope Francis announced the names of 21 new cardinals on Sunday with a consistory to be held in August. Sixteen of those men will be eligible to vote in the next conclave. How was the news of these new princes of the Church received in Rome? The National Catholic Register's Vatican correspondent, Ed Penton, joins us from Rome. Ed, thanks for being here. I want to start with this upcoming consistory. As is his custom, the Pope chose men from the peripheries, uh, with France, Brazil, India, Mongolia, uh, Paraguay, uh, Nigeria, Timor, and, uh, and Italy represented. Only one new cardinal from the U.S., however, San Diego Bishop Robert McElroy. How were these choices received in Rome? Well, I think there's a sense here in Rome, Raymond, that this is very much a sort of completing the circle for a lot of these uh, candidates, a lot of these new uh, cardinals. It's a, as somebody said, it's just rather a lot of giving out lollies to those um, who are sort of favorite friends and those who've done a good service to the Holy Father. And that seems to be um, what what this is. I think a lot of these, um, certainly in the Curia, the, the, the new cardinals in the Curia are, are those who have done uh, what the Pope wanted. Uh, they've been very loyal to him. And I think that is, this is, as I say, sort of returning that favor. Um, but there are two rather strange uh, aspects to this. One is that um, some of these choices seem to have been done on the fly uh, very recently. The, the choice for Mongolia is an Italian bishop um, who the Pope only met uh, two days before. And um, <laughs> as I understand it, according to my sources, then decided to make him a cardinal. Um, so that was not expected. Um, but also the other thing is, is the, the, why, the, why the date of the consistory is so far from the announcement made. And that, that's something that hasn't been done before, not in recent history in any, in any case. And um, there's lots of speculation why that's the case. He's got this meeting with all the cardinals um, to discuss the new curial reforms. That might be part of it. Um, but it right. doesn't really explain why it's so far away from the actual announcement. So that's, uh, th these mm. are two rather strange aspects to this. Well, it's a good reminder, you know, Ed, while we all look to your home country and the English monarchy, this, too, is a monarchy. And, and you know, there's a court at play, uh, and, and the pope is the uh, sovereign, and he can make decisions based on his own uh, mind at the moment. And what do these appointments, do you think, reflect 
on Francis's mind at this moment? And what have the omissions, particularly in the U.S., Archbishop Gomez of uh, Los Angeles, you know, born in Mexico, uh, uh, in a largely Hispanic archdiocese, the largest archdiocese in the country, uh, passed over again. Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, of course, in recent news, uh, once again passed over. Your thoughts on what this tells us about Francis's mindset at the moment? I think it's very much, Raymond, uh, very much along, according to his line of thinking, of course. He's always chosen mostly cardinals who reflect his his thinking, his ideology, his his line of thought. And I think that's very much the case mm -hmm. here. Uh, it was, it's worth remembering that when um, when uh, he met uh, Archbishop Vigano back in, when Archbishop Vigano was the nuncio to the United States, he said, I, I want moderate bishops. I don't want um, anyone else. And for him, moderate bishops mean those who are tend to be, um, I think, uh, some would say heterodox, or at least um, they're not considered conservative or, or particularly or overtly orthodox. And I think that's what mm. you see here, especially with the choice of with Bishop McElroy. Um, so yeah. I think that's very consistent with the Pope Francis and the way he's thinking at the moment. Yeah, it is curious. Uh, when you look back at the, you know, last two popes that we've covered, uh, both uh, Pope uh, John Paul II as well as Benedict, they appointed a diversity of bishops. There were men that were more moderate, but at least they sort of held the middle. And then there were those who were more conservative. This uh, crop of, of cardinals that the pope seems to be choosing are very much in the same ideological form. Uh, pope Francis has so far created 101 cardinals from 58 nations at seven consistories, not counting the next one in August. As of 2020, 73 of the college's electors were created by Pope Francis, 39 by Benedict XVI, only 16 remaining from John Paul II. So the college currently reflects the vision of Pope Francis to a larger degree. Uh, after the August consistory, 16 more cardinal electors will be added, meaning 89 of these electors will be Francis's choices. What is he trying to achieve here, do you think, Ed? Well, I think a lot of it's uh, to do with securing um, his successor, Raymond, of course, the cardinals uh, from the cardinals have cho chosen his successor, and they choose his successor. So I think um, he's wanting to secure very much the the reforms that he's made. He doesn't want somebody coming in after him who's going to undo them all. Um, and this is very much do trying to secure that and make that sort of concrete. I mean, all popes try to do this to some degree. Um, this pope, I think, has done it uh, quite considerably. I think he's, he's certainly... Um, as some say, stack the court, if you like, uh, to, to ensure that that happens. And uh, I think that's very much part of it. Hmm. Ed, on June 1st, uh, Francis named uh, Cardinal, Chicago Cardinal, rather, Archbishop Blaise Supich, a member of the very influential Congregation for Divine Worship. That's the Vatican's liturgical office. He also named Cardinal Kevin Farrell. Uh, and CDF Adjunct Secretary Archbishop Gus DeNoia. Uh, I should mention that uh, Pope Francis has also named the current prefect of the congregation, Archbishop Arthur Roach of uh, the UK, to become a cardinal as well. So liturgy, all of these men are now in that liturgy office, uh, Roche heading it up. Liturgy seems to be looming large in the mind of the Holy Father. What do these picks say about his vision for the liturgy? Well, I think it's very much uh, 
trying to um, continue what the Vatican Council reforms, as, as he sees it, as reforming the liturgy according to Vatican II. And I think these choices are very much along those lines. And um, also to to impose or to implement uh, Traditiones Custodes, I think all of those who were chosen to be members of the congregation um, have come out publicly in support of Traditiones Custodes, which uh, put restrictions on the traditional mass. And I think all of these are certainly along those lines. Um, even okay. Archbishop Denoya, who, um, who was um, used to be quite uh, quite conservative in this regard, he's he's certainly gone along with uh, with Pope Francis, along with Traditionis Custodes, and so he's been chosen. And I think that's the case with with a lot of these picks. Yeah, no, they all they all again they're all towing a particular vision. Um, diversity of thought is not. Uh, treasured here, uh, or apparently diversity of orthodoxy or, or remembrance of even recent history. I mean, we should say for the record, Ed, the Vatican—the Second Vatican Council did not uh, wish to stamp out and uh, blackball, destroy Latin, uh, the singing of Latin in the liturgy, or even the traditional Latin mass. Yet, that is the sort of new thinking that th th they're sort of taking the spirit of Vatican II and saying, no, 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 this is what the Vatican— Second Vatican Council intended. Uh, we'll see where this goes, but I, I, I don't see how sort of doubling down uh, in the institution helps them with the men and women in the pew, who not only populate it, but pay the bills. But we'll see. Uh, Ed, before we run out of time, I want to ask your, your thoughts on the Pope's health. You reported at the end of May that Francis's health issues were ongoing, uh, and had, he had even made an unpublicized visit to the Gemelli Clinic. Uh, for an MRI. Do we know anything new about the Pope's uh, health issues? Is there cause for concern? Well, I mean, there's lots of speculation, Raymond. And what I have heard is that he's he is very weak at the moment. He's he's actually been caught, you know, sleeping at the funeral of Cardinal Sedano and the, the recent audience, general audience. Mm -hmm. um, so he's quite weak and, and tired. And I think that's um, there's something there which uh, which shows that he's he's really not very well. Um, I think it's, it, the knee is causing him a lot of pain and concern, um, <clears throat> and I think he's he's wanting to um, to to he probably needs some surgery for that. But I think he's he's not uh, he's not as well as perhaps um, some people say. At least all the Vatican tries to make it out. I think he's hmm. he's suffering quite. A well, it's the old line, Ed, you know, the, a, a pope isn't ill until he's gone. You know, that's always the Vatican line. We will leave it there. The indispensable reporting of the National Catholic Register's Ed Penton can be found on their website. And his book, The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates, is uh, indispensable, really, in many ways, particularly as we move into uh, a conclave. Who knows when? Thank you, Ed. Joining me now with in-depth analysis of these stories and more is the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing, Robert Royal from Washington, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray from Manhattan. Gentlemen, I want to get your thoughts on the consistory Ed and I were just talking about and some of the choices made here by Pope Francis. Bishop Robert McElroy of San Diego, not traditionally a cardinalatial see, I might add, and Archbishop Arthur Roche of the U.K., the current prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship. Father Jerry, your thoughts on these two selections. What do their admission to the College of Cardinals tell you? Well, with uh, Archbishop Roche, that's expected because he heads the Congregation for Divine Worship. Uh, Cardinal-elect McElroy's uh, a surprise, but not a complete surprise, uh, because he is a very prominent ally of Cardinal Supic and Cardinal Tobin, 
who are uh, cardinals who are very much part of Pope Francis's uh, cabinet, we could say. Uh, he's the, the, those are the American cardinals who are enthusiastic in support of uh, Cardinal Fran uh, Card Pope Francis's vision for the church. Now, the regrettable thing for me is that Archbishop Gomez, who is the Archbishop of Los Angeles, uh, the largest uh, archdiocese in the United States, himself an immigrant from Mexico, and uh, by all accounts, uh, you know, a very good leader in the church, uh, he was again not picked as cardinal, which is unheard of historically. Mm. So uh, the Pope no. has a policy of favoring people who either are personally aligned with him or are from obscure places, not that San Diego's obscure, but we have now a cardinal who is the prefect of Mon Upper Mongolia, uh, which is really remarkable because, uh, you know, there are more Catholics in a small parish uh, on Long Island than there are uh, in the entire uh, country, which will now have a cardinal. Right. Well, th Bob, this runs to the very heart of what I wanted to raise anyway, which is the, the, a cardinal and a cardinalatial see, the, the territory that he has uh, uh, dominance over, that was always usually a high population and high concentration of Catholics. So the cardinal represented that larger group. Now you have people from suffragette dioceses and infinitesimal places out in the world, God bless them, but they don't represent anybody. So. Here's the question. Pope Francis's selections in terms of the next conclave, what is he trying to communicate here? What kind of man is he trying to push to the fore? And is this a healthy College of Cardinals? Well, I, actually, I think there are two things that he's doing. Um, I don't know how much he's pushing this, but it's clear um, that with the appointment of McElroy, you know, we tend to use this term from politics, an ideological line. I, I would really like to stay away from political terminology when we talk about the church. Mm -hmm. I, I think what it is, is it's a kind of a pastoral and theological uh, line that he's been pushing. And every single one of the American cardinals, by the way, like McElroy, has had some connection with McCarrick, which some people write me and say mm. they're a bit disturbed about. Now, th that is one element in what he's been pushing, that this, this sort of vision that he has about what liturgy should be, what um, uh, the future should be in relationship to the secular states that the church must now confront. But there's a wholly different s other line that I, I think has been neglected in the analysis, and that's this, you know, selection of people from the peripheries. As Father said, I, I mean, from what I hear, there isn't even a diocese in a place like Mongolia. And then we have other people who've been appointed from Paraguay and whatnot. Meanwhile, not only Los Angeles, but Paris, Venice, uh, Poland, these places that traditionally had large populations have been neglected. Now, what I think that that is going to do, and I could be wrong about this, is I don't think mm -hmm. that the people from these peripheries share the same kind of ideological, again, to use that phrase, but maybe theological uh, or pastoral line. I don't think they share that with the first world. As we've seen yeah. in some of the previous synods, very often it's been the Africans and the Asians who have tried to resist some of the innovation from Europe and from the United States. So it seems to me that there are two different camps, if we want to put it that way. There is the, the kind of um, spiritual and, and liturgical and uh, theological line that Francis has been pushing explicitly. But there's also this periphery that I don't think, I think is going to be more traditional. And in the next conclave, who knows what they're going to do.
Mm, great, great point. Uh, Father Jerry, the, the college is currently made up of 208 cardinals, 117 of those are electors. So those are the men who will elect the next pope. But after August, 132 cardinal electors will potentially be voting in the next conclave. Does this make the outcome of that next conclave any more predictable, given the influence Pope Francis has had on uh, the, the, the demographics here? I would say nothing's predictable, uh, Raymond, because uh, the cardinals really don't know each other as a group. Uh, individual mm -hmm. cardinals who have familiarity in Italy or in Europe or America will know each other. But, you know, the cardinals have not met in seven years as a group, and all the cardinals named during that seven-year period uh, have not had the chance to talk to each other. Uh, now, you know, as Bob pointed out, cardinals from the periphery had no expectation that they were going to become cardinals. Uh, they you know, in the, in the way the church works, usually bishops who arrive at a diocese like Paris or Los Angeles or New York, they've already had lots of experience in managing smaller dioceses. They have a national profile. Mm -hmm. Now we have basically unknown figures. On the other hand, I have to say, I'd like to add, I lament that the major archbishop of the Ukrainian Catholic Church of Lviv, he was not named mm -hmm. a cardinal. Uh, even though he has provided heroic leadership to his people during this time of the Russian invasion. So the, the idea that you pick people uh, who really have no profile, just come from an obscure place, that doesn't really fit in with the nature of how the cardinal, uh, College of Cardinals mm. is conceived, at least in the modern era. As I mentioned to Ed Penton earlier, uh, Pope Francis has made some significant appointments this week to that congregation of divine worship. We have talked for weeks, maybe months now, about uh, the suppression of the old right and uh, this new vision being advanced. Uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, Blaise Supich, will become a member, joining the prefect, the head of that congregation, soon to be Cardinal Arthur Roach of the U.K. Bob, Supich here in the U.S., he's known as not only a Francis loyalist, but an enthusiastic supporter of the restrictions on that traditional Latin Mass. Of course, Archbishop Roach replaced Cardinal Sarah at the uh, Congregation for Divine Worship. Is there a pattern here? And is this the price, you will, of passage, that you have to support this stamping out of the old right, the old ways to ascend in the church. Yes, I mean, uh, clearly in the, in the liturgical field, you're right to say that he seems to be putting a great deal of emphasis on that. I don't know exactly why, because uh, as we all know, the traditional Latin Mass is attracting people. It's, it's dynamic. It's not for everybody. There are lots of people who were very happy with the, right. the newer liturgies. But that was a growing part of the church, a very dynamic, living part of the church. And in the past, I mean, our whole tradition is built on um, a kind of a, you know, a uniformity or unity in multiplicity. That if you were someone interested in helping the poor, you join Mother Teresa or the Franciscans. If you, if you were inclined toward the intellectual life, you join the Jesuits or the Dominicans. There's a diversity within a kind of a unity that has always marked uh, the church. I was at the, cons the uh, consistory in 2001, in February 2001, where uh, Cardinal Egan from New York and Avery Dulles, the American theologian, prominent American theologian, were rather traditional and were named cardinals. At that same consistory, we also had named as cardinals Theodore McCarrick, 
and Cardinal Casper, who were on the uh, kind of the opposite side, a more progressive side. So in the past, you would try to balance out the different elements in the church and not just promote mm. one element. I, th it seems to me that this, if you want to put it this way, overloading of uh, the, the liturgy commission is, is one of the ways that we're seeing a, a real push to kind of make sure that the legacy of the Holy Father is going to be secure even after he leaves uh, his position. Mm. You know, Father Jerry, uh, someone in Rome told me this past week, they see this as uh, Pope Francis's last stand, his kind of last attempt to uh, commandeer all the, the, the weapons at his disposal and set the course for the future. I want to talk a bit in that respect about how these appointments could affect that ongoing synod on synodality process. In a recent op-ed in America Magazine, soon-to-be Cardinal Robert McElroy writes, our synodal process should not automatically reject certain topics or positions for dialogue and deliberation merely because they're questions of long-held discipline in the life of the Church or a reformable Catholic doctrine. Father Jerry, what's the bishop getting at here? And are subjects like the ordination of women merely disciplines or doctrines to be reformed? Well, if Cardinal uh, McElroy is uh, thinking about what the Germans are proposing, then they want married priests. Uh, that would be viewed as simply a, a disciplinary matter, but it's much more than that. It's a theologically based discipline. And then reformable mm -hmm. doctrines, this is a category that I'm not too familiar with because Doctrine is taught as truth coming from Christ, taught through the apostles. That includes women cannot be ordained to the priest. Homosexual acts are intrinsically immoral. Uh, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. Same-sex unions cannot be blessed uh, because they are sinful by nature since they involve homosexual activity, which is sinful by nature. So uh, I'm not sure what he's talking about, but I know what the German bishops are talking about. And we know the, the president of the German Bishops' Conference recently said he's disappointed the church is not moving fast enough. <clears throat> he's confident it will. But he even said, unbelievably, if the church didn't move in the direction that he wanted, he might consider leaving it, as recently a prominent uh, former vicar general of a diocese left and joined the old Catholic movement. So what we're looking at here is a rolling revolution and endorsing it in uh, any way is basically putting the church into a calamitous position. Uh, this is not what the church is supposed to be doing. We don't question doctrines, and we support disciplines that are, you know, of ancient and, and very holy origin. The reason priests don't get married primarily is because Jesus didn't get married. I mean, let's not forget that. Mm -hmm. So uh, big, big problems coming down the pike. Yeah. But Bob, do you think we're getting into a position here that the Church of England has been grappling with for decades, where you have an overturning of established belief and then a rupture of communion within, where you have cardinals and bishops just walking away? Yeah, the, the dynamic here is quite interesting, because there hasn't been—you know, we're talking about synodality at synods, where, mm -hmm. where things are supposed to be discussed. Well, in the meantime, there hasn't been a lot of walking together among the cardinals. As Father said earlier, it's been seven years since there's been a consistory. Normally, the way that the Church uh, develops a, a kind of a program for the, the upcoming years is as the cardinals are talking with, with one another and they begin to know one another, they talk with the Holy Father, they talk with the officials in Rome, and there's a kind of a global conversation that's going on. 
in my view, that has been largely displaced to this much vaguer synodal process, which, as we can anticipate, is going to be largely run by bureaucrats who've been, been especially chosen to arrive at a specific uh, outcome, one that the Holy Father has been indicating, I think, in the, in the previous synods as well. So there's, there's really been a shift in where the future conversation is taking place. It's not taking place among mm -hmm. the cardinals, among the highest officials uh, and, and the, the most prominent people in the church, but now it's been, been displaced to this place where we don't know what the process is going to be, but the outcome seems to be very worrying. Yeah, I agree. I, th I think the, that conversation and the only people who really care about synodality and the only time you hear it even brought up is among church bureaucrats. The people don't care, and, and I think the hierarchs are, are, are dealing with their own problems. This is the last thing on their minds. So you're right. The, the bureaucrats are basically running this operation, and the outcome, I do think, is going to probably be preordained. Uh, the controversy over Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni's denial of communion to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi continues to burn here in the United States, with other Catholic bishops pledging to support Court de Leon's decision in their own dioceses. Uh, Bishop Vasha of, of Santa Rosa, we had him on the program last week, uh, Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Bishop Burbage of Arlington, Sample of Portland, they've all expressed support. At the same time, you have Cardinal Wilton Gregory of D.C. and others, including McElroy, and, uh, who say this is the wrong course. What is the cost of this kind of disunity among the bishops, Father Jerry? And isn't there a canon law prerogative at play here, a, a mandate? Uh, it's called Canon 915, Raymond, and Archbishop Cordelioni enforced it. Canon 915 says that those who persistently, uh, persistently remain and manifest grave sin in a public way are not to be admitted to the Holy Eucharist. And Archbishop Corleone did precisely that. He gave the appropriate warnings. He attempted to speak with her. She wouldn't listen to him. Now, the fact that the Archbishop of Washington, where uh, Nancy Pelosi also lives and attends Mass, uh, will not enforce Canon 915, I think is a very serious mistake. Uh, you know, all the time we're told there's got to be Episcopal solidarity. Well, when a bishop enforces canon law and he's not supported by others, uh, that's a real lack of fraternal charity, in my opinion. And what is the effect on the general population? Somehow they get the idea someone is okay to receive communion in one diocese but not in another. And they say, I thought this was a universal church where the rules apply to everybody all across the world. Mm -hmm. They should. In fact, this is a serious problem that the American hierarchy did not deal with a year ago when they had their big meeting on the Eucharist. And part of the reason, sad to say, was that Cardinal Ladaria from the Car Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith told them essentially go slow and don't do anything before you get back and consult with us, which was a clear message, don't do anything. Well, I, Cardinal, uh, Bishop Cardinal, Archbishop Corleone did the right thing. We've got to remember what we're talking about here, two things that are of grave seriousness. One, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and secondly, the killing of unborn children. You can't go and support killing children, saying, no, now I want to receive Holy Communion. Complete contradiction. Cardinal Archbishop Corleone has done the right thing. Mm, yeah, no, it does, it does seed in this idea, though, and Father Jerry, you touched on it, that 
perhaps we're moving away from the universal Catholic Church because you're allowing every local locality to basically make up their own rules. And when you have established canon law on the books, established doctrine being implemented, and that's ignored utterly, meanwhile, we create new boogeymen that we chase down, like people going to an old Latin mass, they become the new demons to be shunned and shut out of the church. This is, I have to say, I get so many letters from young people and my heart breaks for them. I don't know what to say, frankly, to them because, you know, they're asking me for answers. I don't have answers about this. Bob, we still hear accusations that Cordelione has politicized the Eucharist. Very quickly, your thoughts. Well, I mean, he's countered, I think, quite beautifully, saying that there are people, presumably Nancy Pelosi, who are themselves uh, weaponizing the Eucharist because she claims she's studied the, the issue and this is sacred ground that she is on about a woman's right to choose. It may be sacred ground for her, but it's not Catholic sacred ground. Look, I think what most people see when they look at this is the Catholic Church now means business about abortion in the United States. On, on all the other issues that the Holy Father cares about, about the climate, about refugees, about the poor, he actually encourages states to take action, to, to receive more, as many people as they can who are refugees, you know, to do something concrete. He gets behind uh, initiatives at the UN and in other places about the environment. Is abortion the only thing that we're supposed to go slow and tiptoe around when we have actual tens of millions of children every year being killed around the world? I don't think so. And, and if the church is going to be taken seriously, if we really believe that this is a serious moral issue, we have to at least be as, as, as uh, active in trying to stop that slaughter as we are in worrying about climate disasters that could happen 100 years from now. Before we run out of time, and I want to move through these quickly, but they're important topics, Bishop Dominique Ray in France announced this week that Rome has ordered all diaconal and priestly ordinations planned for the end of June in his diocese to be postponed. The order apparently follows a surprise apostolic visitation of the diocese. Bishop Ray is regarded as one of the more traditional bishops in France and usually has more ordinations than any other French diocese. Father Jerry, your thoughts on this bizarre order from Rome and why you think it's significant? It's significant because it is interference with the pastoral judgment of the bishop without stating exactly what's wrong with ordaining these men. These men have been studying in the seminary for a number of years, their superiors in the seminary promoting them to holy orders, and then suddenly a blanket refusal to ordain them without stating any reasons. This is, in some, it's, it's in some ways a human rights concern because you tell people, come to our seminary, train, we'll ordain you if you're found worthy by mm -hmm. your superiors. The superiors say yes. Now Rome is saying no. Uh, remember when at the beginning of the pontificate we said, we heard, we don't want a top-down church, we want a collegial church, we want a church of dialogue. Where was the dialogue with these seminarians telling them, I'm sorry, boys, you can't be ordained for the following reasons? There was no dialogue. There's simply a decree saying, mm -hmm. you can't be ordained. A very, very serious matter. I think it's an offense against Christian charity to do this and not state the reasons. And uh, I don't know what good reasons you would give if these men have already been found worthy by their superiors for ordination. 
Well, it appears, if you read reports, it appears this is obviously a traditional bishop. Um, the expectation is that he's training traditional priests and deacons that will be raised up in his diocese, and they're being targeted. I mean, th this would be a little bit like the Boy Scouts penalizing and driving out guys who've memorized the handbook and know how to tie their kerchief right. I mean, th th it, it strikes me as bizarre that you have an institution targeting people who want to follow the rules and, and expand the gospel as laid down by this institution. For what? What's the alternative here? Bob, it seems the Holy See is almost coming down on traditional Catholic practice, given these heavy-handed tactics and the kind of appointments we're seeing in Rome. And, and I have to include the story of deposed Bishop Daniel Fernandez Torres of Puerto Rico. Now, he was removed from his diocese in March without explanation, and he's still trying to meet with Pope Francis. Reports say it was his failure to support vaccinations as a moral imperative that led to his demise. Where's the dialogue of which Pope Francis so often speaks, Bob? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right to point to that. Where's the transparency? I mean, certainly uh, we, we have a canon lawyer here speaking with us, and I don't know canon law, but certainly there are reasons why a person in canon law can petition the Holy Father if he's been accused falsely by some of his, his, uh, his fellow bishops or uh, some of his parishioners. I mean, all that has got to be done in a way that is transparent and shows the justice of what's being done. You don't have to say everything mm -hmm. about the case that's there, but he seems to have— um, one of the sticking points was that he, he said that people had, had a right to conscience about the COVID vaccine, that those who had moral objections or even maybe just were medically worried about the consequences could refrain those who wanted to take it. Could it seem to me to be perfectly uh, a perfect moral balance uh, within freedom because the, the vaccines are listed according to the Vatican, and at the same time, some people may, may not wish to take those, those vaccines for various reasons. Look, I think you're right also to point to the fact that there's this, this way of suppressing what seems to be traditionalism. And, and in the case of the Latin Mass and also of this diocese in France, these are places that are growing. Somebody who actually wants to see uh, the, the message of Christ get out further in the world will help to further it where it seems to be growing and attracting people. And yet we seem to have the, these obscure processes that go on uh, that, that seem to suppress that. It's, it's disheartening. Uh, it seems like the church is, is, is almost willfully trying to stamp out the growing part of the, the laity. And for what, I don't understand. Yeah, no, well, uh, on, on the surface, just as a layman, you look at this and you say, this appears unjust, it appears unjust, it appears cruel, and it appears anti the, the vision and the thrust of the church. It just, uh, th that's what the facts present. Father Jerry, the apostolic administrator in that Puerto Rican diocese, originally claimed that Cardinal Supich may have been behind Bishop Torres's ousting. Now, this is horrible. It's a horrible look, I think, not only for the papacy, but for the Vatican and the, the entire institution here. Your final thoughts. Well, let's put it this way. Um, as Bob just said, the word transparency. In a just canonical system, decisions that are about public matters have justifications that are stated in public. It's been said, and I think it's true, that Bishop Fernandez did not receive a decree removing him as bishop. He was simply told verbally. Mm -hmm. That is canonically right. improper. 
Secondly, he wasn't invited in by the pope, who was the one who removed him, to discuss the issues at hand. He was simply removed. Uh, this is not right. Uh, what we're dealing with here, unfortunately, is a lack of respect for the very thing the pope said he wanted, which was a collegial church. Collegial means the members of the episcopate together uh, engage in friendly and Christian relations, and when there are disputes, they are handled according to pastoral charity and canon law, not according to what happened here, which is basically an unjust removal of a man who was doing a very good job in Arecibo in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. I hope the pope meets with him, because the pope meets with other people who do not support Catholic doctrine, and they have very pleasant meetings with him. Well, Bishop Fernandez deserves a meeting in which he can open his heart to the Pope and say, Holy Father, whatever you were told about me, I want to set it straight. And the people of Arecibo have been offended by my removal in this manner. Yeah, well, I, I hope, too, that Bishop Fernandez gets that meeting. But my sense is he's, uh, he's following the Cardinal Zen pattern here, and he'll be waiting out in the piazza. Gentlemen, we will leave it there for commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray. Visit thecatholicthing.org and Calming the Storm, Navigating the Crises Facing the Catholic Church and Society by Father Gerald Murray is available at bookstores everywhere, including EWTN's catalog. Thank you, gentlemen. On Monday, China launched its second-largest incursion into Taiwan's air defense zone. They sent 30 jets into the area, including 20 fighters. For what that portends, we are joined by author, columnist, and expert on Asian affairs, Gordon Chang. Gordon, tell me what China's latest incursion into that Taiwanian airspace tells you. This happened on Monday. So far this year, Taiwan has reported 465 incursions by China, a 50 percent increase from this period last year. What are they looking to do here? Well, China wants to intimidate Taiwan, and they also want to intimidate the United States. You know, we saw this last week when China did something even worse. With Russia, it flew nuclear-capable bombers around Tokyo while President Biden mm. and other leaders were having their meetings. And so China, at this point, is at the not trying to persuade anybody. It's just trying to force them into compliance. Wow. During his trip to Asia last week, Biden said the U.S. would respond militarily if China attacked Taiwan, something no other president has ever said. Listen. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. We support the one China policy. We support all, all that we've done in the past. But that does not mean, it does not mean that China has the ability, has the, excuse me, the, the jurisdiction to go in and use force to take over Taiwan. Now, responding to Biden's comments, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said the Chinese side expresses strong dissatisfaction with and resolute opposition to relevant words of the U.S. Now, the White House ended up walking back those relevant words, uh, Gordon. But what was the impact of the Biden moment on U.S.-China relations? That's a great question. Um, I think that what it showed to Beijing was that it could intimidate Biden, because after those words from the foreign ministry, Biden actually walked back his comments. And, and as you point out, mm -hmm. um, the general trend of Biden administration policy with regard to Taiwan has actually been quite good. There are more and more contacts, especially on the military mm -hmm. level. 
Um, but nonetheless, when it comes to the president himself, he's creating this disarray. And I think that Beijing looks at that and maybe believes that it could do something because Biden would not be in uh, a position to uh, oppose them. Mm -hmm. Now, according to several reports, China and the U.S. are working to finalize what could be the first face-to-face -face meeting between the Chinese defense minister and the U.S. defense secretary Lloyd Austin at some annual defense conference in Singapore. Now, this happens as these Taiwan tensions increase. Should this meeting take place later this month, what do you expect to come of it, if anything? I don't really expect too much to come of it. Uh, I think Lloyd Austin might say the U.S. will defend Taiwan, and they'll say that quietly, and the Chinese will scream and shout. But I actually think that this meeting is not a good idea. For decades, mm. we have chased the Chinese to talk, and that has swollen their already inflated sense of self-importance. And over this period, mm. China's become more aggressive and provocative, so our policies are obviously not working. I think that we should give the Chinese an incentive to come running to us and to beg to talk. So I don't like this idea mm. of Lloyd Austin talking to his Chinese counterpart. I want to move on to China's interest in the Pacific Islands. This is really troubling when I saw it earlier this week. On Monday, China fell short of a bold plan to have 10 Pacific nations endorse a sweeping new agreement that would cover everything from security issues to fisheries. David Panuelo, the president of the Federated States of Micronesia, told other Pacific leaders that he would not endorse the plan, calling it, quote, the single most game-changing proposed agreement in the Pacific in any of our lifetimes, and it threatens to bring a new Cold War era at best and a world war at worst. Gordon, this agreement was basically designed for these islands to hand over control of parts of their security and economy to China. What is China attempting to do here besides destabilizing the region? Well, they have a plan to rule the world. I mean, they've been very clear that they believe that they're the world's only mm -hmm. sovereign state. So, obviously, they should rule the Pacific. Um, what they did here was overreach. I mean, they were successful in getting a security agreement in the Solomon Islands, which is a game changer. Yep. Um, but then they thought that they could dominate the entire Pacific, and there they fell short. Mm. Yeah. I, I want to put up a map of the Pacific Island nations China is targeting. Uh, the ones in red were visited by the Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, as he pushed this multilateral agreement. Under the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea, every island can get up to 200 nautical miles off its coasts as an exclusive economic zone in which it controls resources like fisheries. China may not have gotten the 10 island nations to sign on to its plan, but they did manage, as you mentioned, to sign smaller bilateral agreements with other Pacific nations. For example, Kiribati signed some economic agreements, and they agreed to build some bridge. Kiribati has key fishing grounds the size of California. How dangerous is it for these small islands to be making these agreements with China? And how could these agreements affect all those surrounding countries, including the United States' interests? Well, I'm very glad, Raymond, that you talked about Kiribati, um, because Kiribati is 1,900 miles south of Hawaii. But in Pacific terms, it actually is our next-door neighbor. And there, China wants to improve an airstrip, which means that the Chinese Air Force could have facilities that could attack Hawaii. So this is extremely dangerous. You know, the story here, Raymond, you know, I can understand Chinese assertion. But what we shouldn't understand and we shouldn't forgive 
is that American policy over the course of decades was either neglectful or arrogant. And in those cases where we actually had a policy, it was misguided. So the Chinese are just taking advantage of a situation that we ourselves created. China, they offer economic incentives and infrastructure to not well. They've done this throughout Europe. Now they're doing it to these uh, island nations. We've seen them work the same routine in African countries. The prime minister of Fiji had this to say during a press conference on Monday. Listen. Our meeting today was guided by mutual respect and the common interest of our people's continued socioeconomic progress. We have a solid foundation on which to build. Fiji's friendship with China uh, has helped develop infrastructure, train our people, and deliver essential medical supplies, which uh, accelerated our post-pandemic recovery. Gordon, what should nearby nations, namely Australia and New Zealand, be doing to counter China's aggression here? Uh, what about the U.S.? Well, first of all, the U.S. should not sub subcontract our policy out to uh, New Zealand and Australia, because over the course of decades, um, the policies of those two countries have really been malign in some of these islands, which is the reason why China is making such fast progress. The United States mm. needs to start paying attention. So, for instance, um, we're reopening an embassy in the Solomon Islands, which is, you know, should never have been closed in the first place. So this is really a problem in Washington that we just need to understand how important the Pacific is because it is right next door to us. Yeah, and, and Gordon, people forget these Pacific islands are predominantly Christian. And opposition to, to China, uh, the Solomon Islands security deal, for instance, has come from church groups, women's groups, and uh, provincial leaders. But church leaders are noting that China has stamped out religious freedom in their own country. How important is religion to the people in these Pacific islands, and what influence might that have on, on this relationship going forward? I think religion is one of the bulwarks that we have um, in terms of opposing China's ambitions here. When China comes into these islands, Raymond, one of the things it does is it corrupts the political system and it corrupts business elites. And of course, um, their ultimate goal is to eliminate religion. We have seen this not only in China, but now it's occurring in Hong Kong with the jailing of Cardinal Zen. Um, this is an attempt to you know, enforce um, their view of the world. They're atheists, and they believe religion is their enemy. So this is something that we can do to mobilize people throughout the region, because as you point out, this is a deeply religious part of the world. Good point. Gordon Chang, thank you for the insight. And you can visit gordonchang.com for Gordon's latest insights on China, North Korea, and much more. Thank you. Thank you, Raymond. There is a long and storied history of Catholicism in England, not all of it pleasant. For a period of three centuries, Catholic priests and laity in England were persecuted and even martyred for practicing their faith. How has the Catholic Church survived in England? And what does English Catholicism look like today? Here to discuss all of this, as well as Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, is the author of the new book, Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. Joseph Pierce. Welcome back to the show, Joseph. Your book is a thorough historical account of how Catholicism has survived in England and covers about 2,000 years, beginning with the arrival of the first Christian missionaries around the year 63 to the reconsecration of England to the Blessed Virgin during the COVID lockdown in 2020. 
Why did you decide to write this book and cover such a large span of time? Well, I think that, you know, that everything is ultimately subject to the truth, uh, and not just the truth itself, but the truth himself, Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So for me, I wanted to tell the story of true England, which is the England that's remained true to the truth himself. And so that Christian presence goes back now almost 2,000 years, as you rightly say, from about 30 years after the crucifixion, uh, 63 AD, uh, right through to, to the present day. Hmm. Paganism lasted in England for several centuries, well after Catholicism had started to spread. One of the turning points that ended paganism was in 596, when Pope Gregory the Great sends St. Augustine to England. How did St. Augustine bring Catholicism to the island? Well, St. Gregory the Great, she said, sent St. Augustine as, uh, as a missionary. Uh, the Catholic church had had a presence in England for half a millennium at this point, which should, which should be mm -hmm. reiterate. But following the withdrawal of the Romans with the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, pagan tribes started to move into England from various parts of the Germanies, Germanic-speaking tribes. And so England was in danger of becoming pagan again, although there were still certainly Christian elements in England. So that great Pope uh, Gregory sent uh, St. Augustine, who was a monk with some companions, they converted uh, the king of Kent, the kingdom in the southeast of England, just over the sea from, from France, and Dover, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, St. Augustine and other Christian missionaries spread the faith very quickly. I mean, by the end of the following century, the whole of England was Catholic. Whole kingdoms were converting um, in, very, in very quick mm -hmm. succession. So once, it, once St. Augustine arrived, things happened quickly. Mm. You write that one of the most important events with respect to the spread of Christianity throughout England was the Synod of Withby in 664. What happened and how did that shape the future of Catholicism on the island? Yeah, well, so obviously what happened is that the English Catholicism before the arrival of St. Augustine had been very influenced by, by, by the Irish uh, Celtic mm -hmm. Christianity, which was very Catholic. But there were anomalies, including the, you know, the date that Easter was celebrated. So the Synod of the Whitby confirmed uh, and conformed uh, English Catholicism to, to the Church of Rome. And so the, the, the celebration of Easter uh, and other uh, parts of the liturgical year were based in conformity with the universal teaching of the Church. So that was the most important thing of it. It ensured that English Catholicism was Roman Catholicism. Hmm. Uh, that, that Reformation period, of course, was a major crisis for the church in England. Uh, it lasted, you had executions from the 1530s to 1680s, where priests and laity were constantly being put to death. You write that in the midst of that suffering and with waves of martyrdom, English Catholics found solace in parallels between themselves and the persecuted Christians of the early church. How did that 150-year period or so of intense Catholic persecution shaped the faith in England, and how did it differ from other countries who were also affected by the Reformation? Well, the, the, the thing we have to remember is there were really not, there wasn't one Reformation, there were three. 
There was the uh, mm -hmm. the Protestant Reformation, you know, heralded by Luther and Calvin, etc. There was the Catholic Reformation, which is sometimes called the Counter Reformation, and there was the English mm -hmm. Reformation because Henry VIII uh, was purely a Machiavellian, self-serving tyrant. He wasn't a Protestant, therefore, that the, the English the English Reformation, so called, was basically just uh, dissolving the monasteries, taking away the power of the church, giving the church lands to uh, the king's own cronies. Um, and basically take, taking the faith of the English people away from them by force against their will. So there was very little appetite in England in the 1530s for Protestantism. Yeah, England was a very and profoundly Catholic country, and the king and his henchmen ripped the Catholic faith away from the ordinary people of England. And as you rightly said there, following that, 150 years of executions, followed by a further 150 years of persecutions, so 300 years of of uh, of the, the Catholics in England being treated as second-class citizens, but how did it shape them? How did it reshape the faith as we have it today? Well, I think it purified them. In actual fact, in the history of true England, I actually see that period of persecution as something uh, not just uh, analogous to to the early Christians and the catacombs and the martyrs, though it certainly is, but also I think ultimately, in terms of uh, the archetype, uh, it should be analogous to the Passion of Christ. It was that the, the Christians of England being crucified for their faith, uh, and if you like, the faith of England being resurrected, first of all, in the hearts of those martyrs uh, and those uh, who worshipped with them, but also, I think, in, in, in the, if you like, it sowed the seeds for the Catholic revival, which begins with the conversion of St. John Henry Newman in 1845, yeah. which is the resurrection, yeah, and if there, you like, there, after the... Yes, and you, I know you, you mark uh, Newman's conversion as a major turning point of Catholicism in England. And also some wonderful English literature uh, comes from converts primarily, uh, Chesterton and Tolkien, and, and really the earliest grand literary works stem from England. You say, quote, the late 7th and early 8th centuries also heralded the birth of English literature. Cademan, uh, the earliest known of all English poets, was a monk at Whitby Abbey. And it is to this period that Beowulf, the great English epic, belongs, a profoundly Catholic work, irrespective of its woeful and willful misreading by modern critics, Beowulf was almost certainly written by a monk. How is Beowulf influenced by Catholicism, and what leads you to believe it was written by a monk? Well, a couple of things I would say about it. Beowulf, for those who, who don't know it, is basically divided into Beowulf's struggles with three separate monsters. In the first two, the monsters are demons. Uh, and what, what the, the, the epic shows us is the errors of the heresy of Pelagianism. Now, Pelagianism was rife in, 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 in England in the early days of Christianity there. And it's very much a modern heresy. It's, it's really the self-help heresy. Because what Pelagius taught was you don't need the sacraments, you don't need the church, you don't need grace. You just have to, you can get to heaven by the triumph of your own will, by self-help. You just do what Jesus mm. says and you get to heaven. Um, so what Beowulf shows us is that Beowulf is the mightiest warrior. He is the strongest warrior. Uh, and he has the best technology, the greatest sword that's ever been made. And even the most mighty warrior with the most mighty sword cannot defeat the power of evil without supernatural assistance. In other words, a symbol for grace, which is in the form of a magical or miraculous sword that has... Uh, elements of salvation history inscribed on their hilt, and it's with this miraculous, mm -hmm. ultimately supernatural sword symbolizing grace 
that, that, that man can defeat evil only with God's help. So it's a profoundly theological work um, and uh, mm. very influential on people such as Tolkien, as you say. So it's a, a major, yeah. major pillar of Western civilization. And, and I want to talk about present-day England. Um, this week marks, of course, the celebration of Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years on the throne, the longest-serving monarch in England's history. How significant is this celebration in the history of England? And then I want to talk about what happens next. Yes, well, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth II is a very interesting person. As she's got older, she's got more Catholic-friendly. Uh, if you listen to her Christmas Day message to the, to the people of England and the, and, and the Commonwealth, uh, her allusions to the church uh, uh, have got much more favorable. When she, was, when she was younger, she was sort of a low-church Protestant, and now she's very much a high-church, uh, at least crypto-Catholic. Um, so we've certainly seen her moving in the right direction. And I would say as well that for someone to have been on the throne for 70 years and the gossip columnists don't have one single uh, thing on her, uh, that demands and commands respect. And so I think that England has been blessed by the Queen as a monarch. Mm. And I think that uh, she has had a beneficial impact in the sense that she does have a traditionalist, uh, traditional understanding of morality, of Christianity. And although she's not mm -hmm. um, a Catholic, members of the royal family have been converting recently. So I see hope for the future. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because obviously uh, Protestantism is the, Protest is the predominant religion, and Queen Elizabeth is, quote, the defender of the faith and head of the Church of England. What is the state of that church today? Last year, four Anglican bishops left the Church of England and converted to Catholicism. So tell me about the state of that church and the prohibitions on Catholics entering the line of monarchical succession. Could that be adapted, changed? Yeah, the, 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 first of all, it's quite evident now, by far, that the largest Christian presence in England is the Catholic presence. The Anglican Church has collapsed. It's collapsed basically because of the decadence of its own modernist theology. And if there are lessons there for all of us to learn. If you, if, if you follow, Chesterton mm. said, we don't want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. Well, the Anglican Church has been mm. trying to move with the world and has collapsed. So that's, a, that's a, a message. The good news, however, is that the, the Catholic Church has stepped into the vacuum, stepped into the breach, so to speak. And you're correct, there's been uh, several bishops who have converted. There's also been um, hundreds of Anglican clergymen that have, that have converted, many of them becoming priests. So um, the Catholic Church is the dominant Christian presence in England now. And as and when and if, and by the grace of God, when uh, England uh, is, is converted, it will be a Catholic country again. Hmm. What do you what do you think? Obviously, Charles is going to assume the throne at some point, probably soon. The queen is 96. What does that portend for the monarch as head of the Church of England, given the eviscerated shape it finds itself in? Well, there's an anomalous situation. Prince Charles is a bit of a bit of a, an anomalous situation himself. Um, for instance, uh, some time back, he said he didn't want to be known as the defender of the faith, but merely as the defender of faith, whatever on earth that means, in order to be inclusive yeah. of other religions. So uh, there's there, there's that there's that direction we can go in. Of course, the title defender of the faith was some given by the Pope, ironically Henry VIII, 
defend, defense or <laughs> so ultimately uh if the monarchy is going to have any uh, significance as regards the faith of the people of england that the monarch has to defend the faith of true england in other words the history of of uh, 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 the catholic faith in england for 2000 years that's that's the only meaningful religion that england as a nation and a culture and a people and a history has ever known and what we really need is the mm. reunification of the monarchy to the to the fact of england's faith wow what a message and and your uh, warning earlier about the state of the anglican church and others who dare follow it and as we were talking earlier in the program it seems there are forces within catholicism wanting to move it in that direction in the direction of the world we'll see how that pans out but uh, i hope people listen to your warning joseph i'll give you the last word Sure, and I, 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 you know, I think ultimately the lesson we see from the history of England and from contemporary issues in the church is that we have to choose between the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of the Age. If we choose the Spirit of the Age, we have no future. Choose the Holy Spirit, we have mm. a future here on earth and a future in heaven. Mm. We will leave it there. Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England by Joseph Pierce is available now at bookstores everywhere. Thank you for coming. Don't make yourself a stranger. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch the show next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thanks for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.